Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. This is Anthony. And this is James. And today we're going to be doing an episode on Guardians of the Galaxy Volumes 1 and 2, which were both written and directed by James Gunn. I love both of these films. They have terrific casts, amazing stories. The first film is about a group of intergalactic criminals must pull together to stop a fanatical warrior with plans to purge the universe. And then the sequel, the Guardians struggle to keep together as a team while dealing with their personal family issues, notably Star-Lord's encounter with his father, the ambitious celestial being Ego. Guardians is so much fun, both films, and it was such a change of pace for Marvel. And on top of that, for me personally, I think for most of general audiences, we had no idea who these characters were. I had never heard of the Guardians of the Galaxy until like the, the announcement and production news of the film uh, began getting released. And I know Car- huge comic book fans obviously know and love these characters very much. But for me, I was completely an outsider in terms of this franchise and this world. And I thought it was such a smart move for Marvel to go from these familiar characters we grew to love to just changing things up and shaking it up. Um, and with Guardians, they blew our expectations out of the water. The best way you can support our podcast is go to patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast and become a patron today. You'll get special perks like a personalized message, personal video, upcoming podcast schedules, behind the scenes footage, and top tier patrons get a monthly shout out on the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe button and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to check out our brand new website, Raiders of the Lost Podcast, to find all of our streaming sources, all of our content, our merch, and where you become a member of the fan club. Yeah, I agree. I had no idea. I never heard of Star-Lord, uh, Gamora, Drax, Groot, Rocket, Raccoon, or or I barely even knew who Thanos was at the time. You were just getting snippets of him. And, and I'm like, who's that purple guy with yeah. the glove? But I, I liked being in the dark about it because it's, it's like when I'm really looking... looking <laughs> It's like when I'm really looking forward to see a movie, I'll try to keep myself in the dark about it so I'm like even more blown away by it. And then Guardians, it was part of Marvel's Phase 2, which started off with Iron Man 3, Thor the Dark World, Winter Soldier, and then Guardians came out right before Avengers 2, Age of Ultron, and Ant-Man. And I think this was the perfect time for this this movie to come out and, the, and these new characters to come because tonally, the MCU is kind of getting pretty dark. I mean, Iron Man 3 was kind of dark. Throw the Dark World, I mean, it's got dark in the title, so it's pretty dark. (laughs) (laughs) And then Winter Soldier was another very dark take on Captain America and that whole storyline. And so it was kind of looking sort of like the DC universe, which a lot of Marvel people don't love. But I love, I like them both, obviously. But I think Guardians really lightened up the mood in the MCU. And it was, it was kind of essential to like set up the, the tone of the rest of the films in phase three and leading to Avengers Endgame and Infinity War. Yeah, I felt like that the end of the Phase 1 films, they kind of lost their adventure quality, and they they lost their fun. I mean, Winter Soldier's awesome, and Iron Man is actually hilarious, but I I felt like the stories themselves, they weren't very fun, and Guardians is just straight fun. I mean, it's a good time. And also, this was an, an important chapter in the MCU because the Guardians allowed for the MCU to move into their second phase in terms of the intergalactic travels and characters and storylines that would will resonate later on in the other phases of the MCU. And this allowed us to branch out of the galaxy away from Earth and Thor's planets and really see the other side of the galaxy and to enter space. And so it had this blending of Star Wars with like Indiana Jones, the adventure of Indiana Jones with the, the sci-fi epicness um, of Star Wars. Yeah, and like Flash Gordon too. And yeah. I remember sitting in the theater the first time we saw the original Guardians movie, just like full of excitement and curiosity more than anything because obviously I'd watched Parks and Rec, so I knew who Chris Pratt was. But then like when news came out that he was going to be the lead of, of a Marvel movie, I was like, oh, wow, this is pretty cool. And then we all saw his transformation from the physical fitness that he had to do to prepare for Star-Lord. But again, the, the trailers were fantastic. The, the advertising was great. And then what you said just earlier what sets this apart in in basically the whole great strength of the Guardians movies is they are just insanely fun, like on a different level of fun compared to other comic book movies. And it kind of set the tone for like what a lot of people turn to comic books in general for. And like now it's being fully processed into cinema with Guardians of the Galaxy. And we get these new characters who we instantly connect with. And because of Marvel, they have this huge confidence to kind of tell these unique stories that, no one really ever heard of and massive budgets. And we didn't hesitate for a second to embrace them in, in that way. And 
just the concept in general I just loved. And I think this tone is what really allowed Thor Ragnarok to be so different from the other Thor movies. Like they really they saw the Guardians movies and saw how much how much different they were from the other Marvel films in terms of the escapism and just the 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 quality of, of fun and excitement and just trying to be funny and hilarious. And I think Thor Ragnarok took a lot of inspiration from what Guardians started because the other Marvel films are they can be really funny, but they're not the same tone Ant Man Guardians. So Ant- and this is right yeah. before Ant Man. Again, it's that same thing of like now this is the new tone. Exactly. Yeah. hundred percent. And the characters, they're just unforgettable and they stole all of our hearts immediately. And they both have great stories and of course, the humor is on the surface, and that's what we see. And they're very colorful, visually, visually stunning films. Um, but there are deep themes about family, trauma, and pain, accepting your past, and 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 just trying to come together with friendship and love. And that's really the heart of these films. Is that they have they're full of heart because of of these deep connections that these these band of misfits just come together. It's it's cliche of like these band of like it's the island of misfit toys yeah, yeah. They come together but it's it's such a fun take on it yeah and the characters the, like you said they're memorable because of they have they have great layers to their personal backstory so they all have their own histories and they all have their own goals and they're all very different from one another and as audience members you, james gunn brilliantly wrote the script where you personally identify with each character in different situations and you learn as you learn more about each character, you grow to love each one even more, um, and that's hard to do with something in the ensemble like this, where you don't have that much time to really tell five different storylines for five different characters, and you kind of have to weave them together in ways, and uh, you kind of lose the ability to go too deep into each character. But I think he he balanced it really brilliantly with Guardians, where he he sh- like Quill is obviously the only person whose backstory you see. But throughout the story and the course of the film with the dialogue and the action that takes place, we learn more and more about each other character. Yeah, and one of my favorite elements to this film that was so different than the other Marvel films and comic book films in general was the music. And of course, it has a score. And I think Tyler Bates did both of them. Yeah, Zack Snyder's composer. And But on top of that, obviously, we have Iron Man. They feature the song Iron Man all the time. This film took that to a new level, and it was like a Scorsese Tarantino level in terms of picking these amazing songs that are full of nostalgia, and and we can we all immediately recognize them whether we've heard them on the stereo as kids or heard them in other movies, like Hooked on a Feeling, which was kind of the theme for the the first Guardians movie that was in Reservoir Dogs. As soon as I heard that, I'm like, that's the from that's Who the got song. yeah, that's Who the song from Res- Reservoir Dogs. Want a bear claw? <laughs> And James Gunn just picked perfect music to complement the different tones of the film and the moods, just like Tarantino, just like Scorsese does. And these playlists are just great to listen to anytime that you're just on a date or just hanging out or just relaxing, working out. You can listen to the music everywhere because he does such a good job with it. And the music, it's not just there just because it's entertaining and fun to go with the movie, but the, he, James Gunn brilliantly links the music to Peter Quill's um, character in terms of the music that we hear in the film is the music that his mother made him on the mixtape. And so he has a deep personal and emotional connection to all the songs that are playing. Um, And you can imagine as he grew up in space, he listened to just this tape over and over and over again. And so having this this, um, 70s and 80s music in a sci-fi film with completely crazy things happening and all, all these insane characters and aliens and and space battles the music set from the 70s and 80s in on earth it allows us to relate to the character in the story it makes us feel like oh i feel like i understand peter quill and and know him because i love this music and he loves this music and that means he's from my world that's that means he's from where i am from and so i can relate to him which engages us in the story of this intergalactic space adventure. Yeah, no matter how far away he is, we feel like we're home because of the music. This episode is sponsored by Writer Duet, the new standard for screenwriting software. Writer Duet has paired up with our podcast to offer a very special promotion. If you use the link writerduet.com slash raiders, again, writerduet.com slash raiders, you can enter to sign up for a 30-day free trial of any one of Writer Duet's subscription services. Writing a screenplay can be hard. The format's kind of weird. And if you're a screenwriter up and coming in the industry, no one will take your screenplay seriously if it doesn't look right. Writer Duet handles that problem. They have a cloud-based access, streamlined, super easy. 
You can literally be co-writing a script with a friend of yours on your iPhones from opposite sides of the world. Famous screenwriters are using WriterDuet, such as Christopher Ford, who wrote Spider-Man Homecoming. All you have to do is head on over to writerduet.com slash raiders. Again, writerduet.com slash raiders to enter the promotion of a 30-day free trial of WriterDuet. And I, I love how you brought up how he used the, the music to coincide with the character in a way. And he really does with the themes and how the characters are feeling, the, the types of songs. Like the first one opens up with Peter as a child. His mother's obviously dying on her deathbed from cancer, from a tumor. And he's listening to the song, I'm Not in Love. And it's a very sad song because you, you wouldn't expect him to be listening to something like that when his mother's dying right in front of him in the next room. And it's because this is sort of a, a character trait that Peter develops as a child where he's, he pushes everything away. And he, he's pushing away the fact that his mother's dying. He doesn't want to believe it. He doesn't want to accept that this, her heart is about to break. And it's just like how he won't accept that gift from her. He won't take her hand which is going to come into play later on in his story. And this is kind of like, again, one of his character traits is he runs away from personal connections and romantic connections in his life. Yeah, and, and Peter's a great character, and uh, I think he's uh, the right choice for who we follow in this film because both, both films are essentially um, they're about Peter, but everyone else has their own storyline, especially Yondu in the second film. But, and Nebula. And Nebula, but, uh, but Peter is the lead of both films, and... I think Chris Pratt brought so much relatability to the character because he has an everyman quality about him. And like you said, we used, we used to watch Parks and Rec. I, I watched every episode, and, and I was a huge Chris Pratt fan before he even got um, Guardians. But then That's Andy from Parks and Rec. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. And, and actually, James Gunn didn't want to cast Chris Pratt. He was advised into allowing Pratt to audition um, by his assistants and the executives because— Chris Pratt had actually lost a lot of weight and gotten into great shape for the film Zero Dark Thirty, where he played special ops assigned to the task of uh, killing Osama bin Laden, and he and the other actors got in amazing shape for it. But this was a, a few years before um, Guardians came out, and after his assistants kept asking him, James Gunn finally auditioned Chris Pratt, and he said that within 30 seconds he knew that Chris Pratt was right for the role. And he asked Chris Pratt to lose weight because you have to... <laughs> You have to look a certain way if you're going to be the lead actor in a superhero movie. And so Chris Pratt lost 60 pounds in six months on this crazy diet regimen and working out constantly. And uh, it really paid off because when he had a shirtless scene, you could see that all the hard work he put into it finally paid off in that scene for him. Yeah, because he was still recording and filming Parks and Rec. That's, that show is still going on. So he would yeah. go back to eating pizza and donuts and live in his life and drinking beer and put on that weight, which, which worked with the character Andy Dwyer. Is that his last name in the yeah. show? Andy Dwyer. And, Claire um, Macklin. <laughs> <laughs> but what's funny in the show, um, on one of the last seasons, when he lost a lot of weight for this, um, they had to explain it in Parks and Rec. And so Andy just said, I stopped drinking beer. <laughs> <laughs> but again, you're right. He's the perfect. James Gunn knew within 30 seconds that he was the right Star-Lord because I think Chris Pratt as Star-Lord is the best cast actor in the entire MCU besides Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark. I mean, we can all imagine to some degree other actors in their other role. You can imagine someone else as Thor. You can imagine someone else as like Scarlet Witch or something like that. But I think that Tony Stark and Star-Lord, I couldn't imagine anybody else playing these roles because Tony, I mean, Downey and Pratt, they bring so much of themselves and their natural personalities and humors so easily to their characters. And it's essential to to find the right person for those specific roles. And Star-Lord, Peter Quill, such an interesting guy. And he's perfect for Chris Pratt because on the surface, Chris Pratt, he's this big guy. He's like, what, 6'2", six, 6'3". Six, he's he's look very masculine. He's a strong-looking guy, especially on camera. But at the same time, he brings this sense of vulnerability to camera and to his roles that you often see. Like, he, even when he's in her, he's got a small role in her. He's just a very vulnerable, like, secretary at the company that Joaquin works at. And so I think that's one of the biggest strengths and weaknesses. That's one of the biggest strengths that he brings to this role of a— super like a hero intergalactic hero bringing a vulnerability to it which we don't usually see we usually think we're gonna get like flash gordon or han solo with this character yeah and like you said with tony and him they both need a, a huge amount of charisma and likability and i think pratt has that without a doubt and that's why it works so well with him as star lord because he you, you there's certain things that i i no matter how good of an actor you are 
you can't always just make the audience love you. And Chris Pratt is a lovable guy in real life and in this film. So I can totally agree with you in terms of him being perfectly cast and one of the best casts in the entire franchise and the MCU. But my, I think my favorite character in the Guardians franchise is, is Gamora. I think she's super fascinating. Her backstory of being this assassin who was adopted by Thanos, who actually killed her family. And she's struggling with her life as an assassin and a killer. And she makes the conscious decision in this film to try and do the right thing for once. And I think that Gamora is a great character in the MCU. Yeah, Zoe Zaldana is terrific in everything she does. And Gamora is one of her best roles. And she obviously isn't a stranger to huge sci-fi films where she's a different color, <laughs> Avatar. And I'm sure she's going to be in all of what, like, like 17 more of those Avatar films eventually someday. So, you know, she's used to the to all the, the getup instead of the uh, motion capture in, in 3D technology cameras and everything they were doing for Avatar. She had to go through the prosthetic and make a process of, of Gamora. And her home was destroyed by Thanos. Half her, the entire population was killed. And she became, according to Thanos, the I think the most fierce woman in the universe and one of the most deadly women in the universe. And her story is, like you said, she decides to finally do the right thing. But that seems to like be a trait that she's been hiding for as long as she can wanting to do the right thing but she's been in a mode of survival because she's been under the thumb of her adopted father thanos that she has to appease him up until the point when she gets the chance that she can escape and because you can tell that she's always wanted to do something good despite pushing it so far deep down inside of her this episode is brought to you by our friends at manscaped.com two million men are using their products use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping from manscaped.com. We are huge fans of these products. I'll be using them for the rest of my life for sure. And they, they were life-changing when we received that lawnmower 3.0 in for the first time. And it's got a built-in light. You can use it in the in the shower. It's waterproof. It's sensitive to the touch. They sent us everything from their t-shirts, their the deodorizers, their colognes, their boxer briefs, everything is top-notch, high-quality. Ladies, these are amazing gifts for the men in your life. Fellas, these are the best products you can do. It's a service to yourself to use good clippers on your, pre- on your precious body. Head to manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off in free shipping. Mora allows for us to have a, a storyline connection to Thanos, and there's that great scene it's the first actual scene with Thanos in any of the MCU films that's not just like a teaser, post-credits, or mid-credits. It's, it's a full-on scene with Ronan and, and Thanos. Ronan, Gamora, and Nebula are part of Thanos' world, and that allows us to see, finally, this big bad that we've been waiting to see finally show up. In, the, in her and Star-Lord, they have that, you know, the unspoken thing that Star-Lord Dory's trying to bring up. And it, it obviously, because of being this assassin and being Thanos's adopted daughter she she can never really choose to follow her intimate feelings for for a long time it takes a long time for Peter to break down that emotional wall that she has built up to because remember she's been living her entire life day by day survival from Thanos that's why she has such a tough guard that's why she's so hard to to tap into emotionally or connect with she's nothing compared to her sister who has lived an extremely harsh life Nebula, played by Karen Gillan, who we adore because she was in Doctor Who, she has probably one of the most tragic storylines throughout all of the MCU where she was always the second best to her sister. And because of this, Thanos always tinkered with her and, and added robotic pieces to her and ripped out this and put took this away and put gave her a new eye. And so Nebula has been on this crash course into being a, a horrible villain because of what was done to her as a result of Gamora's more G- Gamora's dominance on the battlefield. Yeah, Nebula, she has a much bigger role in the second film, in Guardians film. And, and, she, and in Infinity War, yeah, too. Infinity War, she, she has a big one. She's a very transformative character. I think she might be the most underrated character in, in the MCU in terms of how interesting she is, her story arc, her transformation, and the emotionality to her character because she spent her whole life just like Gamora trying to survive every day but at the same time she was at battle every day with Gamora but Gamora was a better warrior and beat her every single day and every time that Nebula lost she would go through the pain and trauma of Thanos trying to replace parts of her body 
with machinery or or new technology to try to make her equal to Gamora in strength and in fighting prowess and in battle. But and so you can imagine that Nebula used to be a being. She used to didn't have any of these components inside of her, none of this electrical wear. She wasn't part android, if you want to say. And she did used to just be her own mortal being. But now this is what this is what Thanos has turned her into because every day that she lost, every time she lost to Gamora in battle, she was she had new parts put into her. And this caused in years of tension and hate for Gamora because we eventually find out in the second film, Nebula, all she ever wanted growing up was a sister, whereas Gamora was just too focused on winning every day and beating her. And that's why Nebula travels the entire universe just to try to beat Gamora in battle and can't even kill her when she does it. And then Gamora tries to explain to her that you did all this just because, because you wanted to beat me. And she's like, no, I just wanted a sister. That's the thing with James Gunn and how well he wrote these movies is because as goofy and silly as they can be, and even though like the characters are like quick quipping jokes during the most dire circumstances, there is still a lot of room for levity and um, great emotional scenes like that and tragedy. But also, what J- what makes James Gunn's um, films so unique and so so memorable is that he kind of just plays with cliches where. When something's being taken too seriously, uh, he jokes around. He jokes with it. So, for example, like um, when Gamora tells um, Sean Gunn's character—I can't remember his name—what what she's gonna do with her with her ten percent, and she says she's like gonna go on this epic quest to like <laughs> kill Thanos and like murder like all these people, and it's like super dramatic. And she talks about like her past, and it's she gets emotional, and also she's just like filled with like this sinister evil quality and it's like a a two-minute diatribe and then sean gunn's character's like oh well i was thinking about maybe a hat or something (laughs) (laughs) so even when things get super serious he like turns it around and makes it into a piece of comedy and he he pokes fun at cliches essentially and some other ones that i really love are when um the the guardians in the first film decide to band together before the climax and they all stand up in that circle uh it's, it's uh star lord gives that great speech but then rock is just like making fun of them all for like look at us we're all standing in a circle now <laughs> so he takes that inspirational thing we've seen a thousand times and just kind of makes fun of it and like peter quill calling Rodin a bitch before he kills him <laughs> uh, and doing the dance off battle at the end so like he takes all these cliches where he sets up the cliche and then he just makes a joke out of it, which is really great. He does the same thing in Guardians 2 when Peter and Ego are fighting and they're inside the planet and they're like Peter has his powers and and they're flying against each other and they begin to morph into using all the rocks around them. And and uh Ego makes like some like pointy structure, but then Peter makes a giant Pac-Man to, yeah. to fight. So yeah, he does the same thing like again, like you said, in dramatic situations to ease the tension and to keep it light and and the and the humor alive in the film, and then some other great characters. Obviously, Rocket Raccoon, who is again this tr- this traumatic and tragic character. And you know, Rocket was made in a lab. He didn't choose to be made. He didn't choose to to be what he was was forced into. He he doesn't even know that he's a raccoon. He doesn't even know what being he is. He's probably the only being in the universe that's by himself, besides Ego at one point. And then. He has this chip on his shoulder at all times against everyone and everything, and he—he's the Tom Brady of Guardians, <laughs> a little, a little more serious. Yeah, he, uh, he alienates him. He refuses to come to terms with re- with friendships and relationships, and he's a very tortured creature. in in, in person, he's very much like Nebula. Um, in times, he's, he feels completely alone, and in this trauma and this past that he won't accept is what causes him to push everyone away, and he's kind of like this Frankenstein monster of a little creature. And this is where James Gunn is so smart where all of the characters are three-dimensional. Rocket could have easily been just like some sidekick that busted funny jokes and that was all. But he makes him a really uh, unique character with his own personal dramatic and, com- and backstory with a lot of conflict, which makes us really relate to him. Rocket on set is actually played by James Gunn's brother, Sean Gunn, who, who plays the character with the other actors wearing like this green leotard suit. And then in post-production, they just uh, dig- digitally input Rocket in afterwards. And then I think everyone knows that Bradley vo- Bradley Cooper voiced Rocket Raccoon in post-production. And uh, Bradley Cooper 
said that he was paid more for pl- for voicing Rocket Raccoon in that movie than he was paid for starring in Silver Lang's Playbook and The Hangover combined. Probably took him like three days of work too, if that. But we're talking about the first Hangover, not the second two. Gotcha, he got, yeah, he gotcha. got like $25 million for the other two, but the first one, he got small. And Rocket's kind of like this highly trained warrior or tactician. He's a... He's really great with weapons. He's kind of an engineer. He's always like putting things together real fast. Uh, he's clearly very intelligent, but again, he's he's very cynical and defensive, and that's one of his biggest flaws. But you know, Peter has this ability to put these teams together, and he kind of he kind of works with everybody's flaws, and they all eventually use they they use and accept each other's trauma and each other's pain to to work together and to become a family. And and Rocket is one of the most underrated characters probably in the group. And speaking of pain, I mean, you can't imagine the amount of pain that Drax has been through. For as funny and goofy and honestly as dumb as a character can be, again, he makes Gunn makes him three-dimensional where you have this backstory about his wife and daughter being killed. And he has this mission, this goal where he's trying to get revenge on like Liam Neeson style on the people that murder his family. And so you really feel for Drax, even though he is just being silly half the time. And also Drax, he has like the I would say the best lines in both movies. He's got some hilarious lines in these movies. Yeah, he has this odd form of communication where he he can't understand metaphors or sarcasm. He's he's got the most impulsive, unfiltered honesty you could imagine. It's in a almost character. like he's got like Asperger's or something, or, or like autism. But really, the the story of him is his name is actually Arthur Douglas, and he was a human who, along with his family, was murdered by the supervillain Thanos, and his spirit was placed into a powerful new body to create a super warrior. His memory of losing his wife and daughter are intact. However, he lost his area of imagination, and apparently he he belonged to a race of beings who communicate only on a very literal level. So he Uh, can't really think abstractly in a way with sarcasm and and, and hypothetical concepts and things like that. So that's why, like, everything goes over his head. And, And, like, if you said he's... He's like, that won't go over my head because my reflexes are too fast. I would catch it. I would catch it. (laughs) Don't ever call me a thesaurus. (laughs) My favorite one, my favorite one is when they're um, about to escape the prison. And, well, no, uh, when when Drax uh, has cornered uh, Gamora with the other prisoners and um, and Star-Lord, Peter Quill talks him out of it and saying that he could uh, kill um, Ronan himself. and And Peter slides his finger across his throat insinuating like killing him and then drax is like why would i slide my finger across his neck <laughs> and quill's like it's a met like this is a common you, thing you got it right you got it. yeah no no i didn't get it. it's so funny yeah and drax basically he's just on this path of vengeance and he'll follow whatever avenue takes him there it doesn't matter who he has to he's kill. like benicio and sicario basically yeah so he's <laughs> he's like a mercenary for for the largest hire or whoever can point him in the right direction of thanos and ronin and that's why he's trying to he thinks that ki- killing gamora will help him solve his problems but then he eventually obviously learns that that's not the right thing to do or the smart thing to do and becomes a member of the guardians of the galaxy this episode is also sponsored by MoviePosters.com. Use our special promo code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. If you're watching our show on YouTube, we hope you are checking it out. You'll see all these posters on our set sent to us by MoviePosters.com. These are high quality, great printing. They can do any kind of size, pretty much every movie imaginable. They've also teamed up with our podcast to distribute our own custom movie posters that James and I made. We did spoof posters of The Shining and of Lethal Weapon. And we also did our own custom Raiders poster. Head on over to our website, RaidersOfLostPodcast.com, to check out the merch section where you can find our posters for sale on MoviePosters.com. Again, use our promo code Raiders15. Again, Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today at MoviePosters.com. And then the final member of the galaxy in the first film uh, is probably a fan favorite, and that's Groot. And uh, Groot is a, a great character. Uh, I especially love uh, Baby Groot like everyone else, and hopefully we get to see Teenage Groot uh, in uh, the next Thor film, Love and Thunder. And every, I think everyone knows Groot's voice by Vin Diesel, and he recorded Groot's iconic line, I am Groot, over 1,000 times, and he even also recorded all the lines for different languages like Russian, Mandarin, Spanish, Portuguese, German, all these different uh, foreign countries so that they could use his real voice 
in their films as well. So there's no um, voice actor for the other ver- versions of the films. It's not like that would be hard to do anyways. It's yeah. three words in every language. <laughs> but what's cool is that James Gunn, um, obviously on the normal script, every time Groot has a line, it says, I am Groot on the page. And so James Gunn wrote a specific script for Vin Diesel where instead of I am Groot, it says what Groot is actually saying translated so that Vin Diesel could understand the the intention and the, the sentencing and the phrasing that Groot was actually speaking to help him with his performance. Super interesting. Yeah. I love Groot. He's, he seems to be the most innocent of them all. Obviously, if he has pain in his past, we don't really learn too much about it. Not yet, if there is. Um, and unlike the others, Groot is the first of the group, really, who constantly puts himself on the line for his friends. And he's the he just loves having friends, it seems to be. like He seems most childish of them all and, and most open to relationships and one of, my, one of the best parts is we learned that he's actually the muscle of the group when they're in the prison yeah. and, and the guy who tries to mess with Star-Lord and then Groot immediately lifts him up from his nostrils. And so we learned yeah. that Groot is incredibly powerful and strong. And but I would say, like you said, he's the heart of the group. He really he's is. He's like the connective tissue. Because whenever you watch them in battle, Groot, yeah, he's, he's tearing stuff up. Even Baby Groot kills some guy. But he's oftentimes protecting his friends and shielding them or or obviously at the end of the first one when the when the ship is crashing and he sacrifices his life to save his friends that he hasn't even known them all for that long, but they've turned into such a strong family that he has no hesitation to happily sacrifice himself for their safety. And what's cool that I didn't I didn't know this until I read about it, but I thought that baby Groot was Groot reborn or like a Groot. Uh, it was Groot like regrowing from that last branch, but um, Groot was actually killed in the first film. And then Baby Groot is his offspring. It's his son. So Baby Groot's a different being. Exactly. And the cool thing about Groot is obviously he only says, I am Groot, where Rocket can understand him. And then eventually the others of the group can can understand him. He, he also has like, it's like Ray understanding everyone in uh, uh, Force Awakens. And it's also how like in Oceans, in the Oceans trilogy, everyone can understand Chinese, but can't speak it for some yeah, reason. Yeah. Which is like, come on, they don't know how to understand Chinese. Get the <laughs> hell out of here. There's no way George Clooney learned Chinese. <laughs> but one of my favorite parts about Groot is his nonverbal communication when he's not saying the three lines and he does things like like when they're on that little city planet and he, he grows the flower for that little girl who's obviously not having a great life. And then he also uses those the firefly lights to to illuminate their path head. So the, the non- and then also like he defends Quill in that uh, debate, and then when it cuts back to Groot, he's like chewing on a leaf on his arm. <laughs> <laughs> Quill's like Groot. Groot knows. <laughs> Groot's wicked funny. I feel like Groot was the inspiration for Baby Yoda. Oh, I think you're right. Hundred percent. Oh, the, it must even, be. Even the puking scene when Baby Groot, oh, Groot pukes. Dude, you're absolutely it right. It reminds Groot- me so much of Baby Yoda puking. Baby Yoda was definitely inspired by Baby Groot. 100%. 100%. 100%. Yeah, not a doubt in my mind. Because Baby Groot became a sensation. And think about before Mar- before Guardians 2 came out, all the advertising was with Baby Groot. Like It was like Baby Groot for Geico and Baby Groot for this, so they were pushing hard on Baby Groot. Dude, you're absolutely right. Dude, everyone loves a like, cute little alien, baby. Come on. Dude, that's a great connection. Thanks, man. And then another great character is Yondu. And Yondu is, you know, very villainous in the first film. This is something we we learn with the Guardians of the Galaxy, these two films, and I'm sure we'll see what the third one is. These villains tend to become heroes in a way. Well, everyone in the Guardians is an anti-hero, yeah. if you think about it. So they're all they're all criminals. And they all have, a, have like, a, a story arc of redemption in a way. Even, I would say, like, Nebula's entire path is redemption. Chris Pratt is Star-Lord, there's redemption in there, Gamora redemption. So they all have are trying to redeem their their past and make up for the bad things they've probably done in their life. But but Yondu, the first film, is definitely vel- very villainous. But in the second film, we learn so much more about this character and we begin to empathize with him in so much more because we learn about how in the second film when Star-Lord is going through the process of meeting his father, Ego, and, and dealing with that situation. But Yondu is really the one who raised him. Yondu is the one who saved him from this main maniacal celestial being god he's the one that didn't give him to him because he knew he was going to kill him and he raised him despite with hiding the fact that he was a father in a way so he he didn't want to make it seem like he was his father but he was in a way and you know he threatened to eat him but that was just you know to him that's funny but he really was a father figure and it's very emotional at the end of guardians of the galaxy 2 when yondu spoiler alert sacrifices his life to save star lord yeah Guardians 2 actually became very much 
heavily involved with Yondu's storyline. He became, you could argue, the second most important character in the film behind Peter because so much of the story is spent on Yondu and his storyline involving the other Ravagers and how he's been kind of exiled and excommunicated from the from the community and and ultimately his his sacrifice and it, it at, in the first film you're right there is an emo, an emotional connection to him but James Gunn does that what he did with the Guardians characters to Yondu in the second film where he makes him three-dimensional he makes him super relatable and you understand more about who he is and why he does what he does and and what motivates him and that he also has made mistakes and is paying for them and he again, like you said, it has his own redemptive story, and 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 start. And Peter Quill realizes that he was so distracted by ego because he was his his father, and it's new, and it's like, oh, I found my dad, I found I found where I come from, but he he lost sight of the person who raised him, which is in a lot of ways more important. Yeah, and Yondu's powers are super fascinating with. Uh... With, with the fin that he wears and the arrow and his he is can kill so many people yeah. in a matter of seconds and it's really cool to actually see that on a mass scale in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 especially on that planet and then on the ship it's an unbeatable weapon in a lot of ways and in the comic books he was just an archer and uh i think they invent and i think they invented this like artificially controlled mind controlled arrow fin um because I think they thought it was maybe more cinematic and more, um, more dangerous of a of a weapon than just a bow and arrow. And also, they probably wanted to divert away from Hawkeye, um, so they didn't want two people who shoot bow and arrows. So I think uh, they improved the weapon. I think it's uh, one of the one of the best. If you if you j- just count like that as a a superhero power, like that's one of the best ones. Cinematically, it's very cool. Yeah, and I want to go back a little bit to to Peter Quill because he's obviously the heart of the films and the main storyline and his character is super important and he has so many character flaws and great character traits. Obviously he's, he's very immature, which is a, a theme throughout both films. And the first movie is dealing with that immaturity. He get, again, he's like this child that never grew up. He never had the adolescence of a, of a normal person in life. He was immediately a part of a, the ravagers. So he, he grew up really without, structure in his life and he's still immature he's still obsessed with like the same things that like a 14 year old would be obsessed with and again he can't emotionally connect with anyone he forgets that 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 young woman is inside of his ship at the beginning (laughs) of the first film and and he has this great arc of thief to hero to celestial god back to hero and i think that's his greatest strength is he cares more about his humanity than what he could be with powers. And even though when we get to Ego in his planet and he finds out that he's a celestial and he has he actually has superpowers and that in a way is validation for him. And he thinks that his his father Ego, ironically, that's the, one of the main themes of that film, validating who Star-Lord thinks he should be, like this this notorious outlaw, universally famous, and he finally gets his name recognized and he's like, Oh, my father heard about me, and so it's it's a really great back and forth. And then watching the character, what happens to Peter? Yes, he's created this family from the first film, but now what happens to his ego when he gets superpowers? How does he react? Yeah, he does become very arrogant, and he has that fight with uh, Gamora because he thinks that she's jealous and um, wants to take it away from him. And it takes the the rest of the film for him to understand that. Ego is not his family. Yes, Ego is his father, but his family are the guardians, and his father is not Ego. It's the man who raised him, and that's Yondu. In the second one, a lot of people actually go through this arrogance and ego. It's a main theme for several characters, and especially Rocket Raccoon. His ego is all over the place in the second film, and him and him and Star-Lord are constantly butting heads because, again, Rocket, because of his past and because of his trauma— he pushes everybody away, and even Star-Lord says that line to him. He's like, what's your plan here, to make everybody hate you? Because it's working, because he's constantly bickering, constantly fighting. And Rocket, another great example is is when him and Star-Lord are fighting over who should fly the ship, who should pilot, and they both are calling themselves the greatest pilots in the universe, in the galaxy. And so it's funny, but it's it's very it's very obvious to how their egos are getting in both of their ways to keep the cohesion 
keep the cohesiveness of this family alive. Their arrogance and, and their overconfidence had serious problems. But then also, James Gunn plays it for laughs too. Like in the first Guardians, um, in the opening scene when those mercenaries don't recognize the name Star Lord, and, and Peter's like super like bummed out, like really Star Lord. And then during the final battle, when he interacts with um, Jimon Hunsu's character again, and he goes, "Ah, oh, Star Lord." And then Peter's like, finally. <laughs> Great moment. He, I think that Peter, he, he's always seeking validation because he was an orphan. And I think it's just a psychological, psychological trait that he deals with growing up without parents where he's, he seeks the attention and, and um, the validation of other people. Yeah. And again, he's not superhuman. He's not super genius. He has no super strengths or superpowers yet. Obviously, he has superpowers when he's on Ego's planet. In Ego's planet, the light still shines. But, you know, he's similar to Ant-Man, although Ant-Man, his suit is a superpower. So, technically, Star-Lord, Peter Quill, is is the least super person in the MCU in a way. Well, the whole Guardians crew, except for maybe, I would say, Groot has powers. True, but, but I mean, Drax has superpower and Raccoon's genetically enhanced and Gamora's trained the most highly trained person. Gamora is super strong yeah so like I mean, she holds that giant machine gun from the space they all technically have superpowers in a way except for star lord is the only one that doesn't have any and that's one of the reasons why i like him so much because he's this ultimate underdog of a hero even if you compare him to like hawkeye or black widow again them two are highly trained super soldiers in their very specific genres of martial arts or or bow and arrows or, or martial <laughs> arts <laughs> i mean it's not no it's a superpower i'm, I'm highly traded bow and arrows <laughs> i mean what would you say what would you call it uh archery yeah. sorry <laughs> sorry to any archers listening i didn't mean to unsubscribe <laughs> yeah we just got unfollowed by the one guy who does archery in his backyard like joe rogan sorry guy i didn't mean to call it bow and arrows archery <laughs> because <I'm highly> trained. <laughs> in avengers we see hawkeye shooting people not looking that's a superpower in a way or highly highly yeah, yeah. developed okay so yeah yeah star lord doesn't have any in, he's a he's he's a great pilot but he's not highly trained is he like them. is he though yeah do we really know how great of a pilot he is though yeah. we don't he could be mediocre for all we no, know he's pretty good how do you know from the scenes in the in piloting from the scenes when he goes straight <laughs> <laughs> well he escapes those guys in the opening of the first film okay he does he does some good flying yeah. but I'm, I'm just saying is, is no, he, no, no, i yeah. agree i agree yeah, you know, what, you know yeah. what i mean i know what you mean yeah yeah all, not... you, all you born arrowers know what we mean <laughs> <laughs> but again he's he hasn't grown up and that's where we see in the opening of guardians one which i love so much you know it opens up with after his childhood when we have this very dark planet and dark music and ominous tones and it's it's there's lightning everywhere and then it just goes to star lord dancing the music it's 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 fun but it shows the immaturity in the character how he has never really grown up to be a full adult yet and sets the, that scene sets the tone for the franchise it's a great way to to show the audience what these movies are and both of the films they they end with with peter accepting a difficult truth a hard truth so the first film ends with peter accepting his mother's death which he always avoided um and didn't want to deal with and then the second film um, ends with Peter accepting that his father was Yondu and that his family are the Guardians of the Galaxy. He's a very tragic character. He lost his mom. He killed his real dad. He lost his second dad. He lost eventually in Avengers his girlfriend. He he willingly shoots her. Obviously, that was a facade, but then he loses Gamora when Thanos, spoiler alert in case you haven't seen Avengers, when when Thanos throws her off the cliff to get the Soul Stone, so I'd appreciate it if you guys put a warning in the video <laughs> saying that you're gonna spoil the movie. Spoiler alert! I mean, we're only 50 minutes in. You're already giving us spoilers, <laughs> <laughs> so you can think that he might be one of the most tragic characters in the MCU from everything that he's lost towards the end of Avengers. Yeah, yeah. All the characters in Guardians are very tragic. Mm -hmm. Every single one of them, and that's what makes them relatable because they're all, they aren't perfect. They aren't Superman. You know what I mean? And Peter his element with the music and the tape recorder and, and the cassette player. And it, that itself is an example of his grief. It's a direct metaphor of his grief from, from hiding from his past. And he, he chooses to un, not unwrap that gift that his mother gave him on her deathbed until the end of the first film, which is 34 years later or something like 30 years. No, it's like 20 something years later when, when he finally, has the courage to face his past, accept his mother's death, 
and read the letter he she wrote him and open the gift and realize that and find the next tape for the next for the next volume. I think everyone agrees that DC has the best villains. I think everyone can agree with that, but I think um, I mean Thanos is pretty dope. Yeah, Thanos is sick. But in terms of like all the movies, like the percentage of great villains. Yeah, I mean, what was the villain in, Thor, in Thor, Thor: The Dark World? That the elf? dark elf. Yeah, the what dark was elf. Even his name. Um, <laughs> dark elf. Dark elf. <laughs> Could have been. <laughs> IMDb Dark Elf. <laughs> but um, but the the villains in Guardians they're they're pretty good. I think Rodin is a is a good villain in the first film, and then Ego is another good villain in the second film. So I think uh, in terms of the Marvel movies, I think that Guardians has pretty good villains for the most part. Yeah, they all do. I mean, Winter Soldier is pretty cool. Winter Soldier is a great villain. Yeah. yeah, he's not good. He's great. But I love to like explore Peter more in. in- one of my favorite things to see people comment rage about on YouTube, obviously, with, with anger. You can you can just hear how hard people are typing on their <laughs> keyboards when they leave comments sometimes is is why Peter attacks Thanos in Avengers when he's asleep, when Mantis has him asleep and they're trying to get the gauntlet from him. And I think obviously it's because Peter's love for Gamora is what makes him attack Thanos when he's asleep because this shows how truly human he really is. He might be the most empathetic and human character of them all. And you know, people complain that it's irrational and it doesn't make sense. Why is he beating on him when they could just defeat Thanos right now? But again, he's lost so much. And Gamora is the only is the person that he loves more than anything. And I'm sure anyone who's gone through the loss and pain that Peter's gone through would react the exact same way. Yeah, I, I never had a problem with that scene because, like you said, he's been through so much emotional turmoil. And this person in particular, Thanos, caused so much pain and and I, I can I totally had no problem with with Peter Quill attacking Thanos Thanos there, and it shows the that people make mistakes and and he's human and I think we can all relate to that, and that um no matter what no matter how good the plan is there's no such thing as a perfect plan yeah and clearly in Guardians one he has mom issues Guardians two he has dad issues and then Gar and then Avengers he has father in law issues big time <laughs> <laughs> I also love in Avengers when um they pick up Thor. And then um, he tries to like start sounding. He deepens his voice and tries to like bust out his chest to try and seem more masculine in front of Thor. You're copying me. <laughs> You're copying my voice. He's like, I always talk like this. <laughs> and then Drax is like, That's not a dude. That's a man. A muscular, handsome man. You're a dude. <laughs> one of the most important elements of Guardians of the Galaxy, though, the first one, is we learn obviously about Thanos, but then we also get to learn about the Infinity Stones more. And they, at the time, they, we were so curious as to what they really were. No one explained what it was. Yeah, we, never, we, we just got glimpses of what they looked like or maybe or were they connected. Obviously, hardcore comic fans knew, but most people like us, we, we just know. Yeah, we just knew that they had some kind of superpower quality to them. Yeah, and so obviously the, the plot of the first one is about this this orb and none of them, no one knows what's inside this orb. And then they bring it to Benicio Del Toro, who's the collector in this film, in this series. And we learn about the Infinity Stone and how the Power Stone is inside of it. And we also learn that you must be a very powerful being to hold and possess an Infinity Phone. <laughs> Infinity Stone. Infinity Phone. Oh, wow. We're all, we're all, we're, we got the giggles today, man. <laughs> oh, man. Everyone's, I hope people are laughing at this. But um, we learn about the Power Stone. And the Power Phone? <laughs> the Infinity Power Phone. <laughs> this is getting too silly. Let's Let's focus. We learn that only a very powerful being can hold and possess an infinity stone. And then this ties on towards the end of the film where we have this this beautiful bookend in the first film where in the first act, in the first scene when young Peter doesn't take his mother's hand and at the end of the film, he doesn't take his mother's hand because he's choosing to reject the fact that she's dying. He doesn't want to accept that. But at the end of the first film, he chooses to take Gamora's hand while he's holding the infinity power stone so that he doesn't die, and so that they can share in each other's pain, and they become they can all become a true family. And this is all they all take each other's hands in that way. Yeah, the unity of the moment is really great, and it solidifies them as a unit and as a group in a family. And it also shows the the uh, the clues to Peter Quill's lineage, where um, after this, the the military scientist at Xandar um, uh, processed his his blood and found the genetic makeup saying that he is only half human and he, he's half something else that they don't recognize and but he has something special and powerful within him um, from his lineage and that's why he was able to hold the infinity stone and then we find out in the second film that 
he's half celestial thanks to ego. And I thought it was really great that they just hinted at it. And also Yandu at the end of the film is like, that guy was an asshole. Yeah, probably good we didn't deliver him to his dad. That guy was a jackass. <laughs> and again, we find out that we she says that uh, Glenn Close says, your father is something very ancient we haven't seen before. We haven't seen in a very long time. And they teased so well the second film with finding his dad. And obviously that is one of the main themes of the second film, besides everything we've talked about, is also parenthood. And I think parenthood comes into play big time with Baby Groot and how they all have like their own little moments with Baby Groot and like kind of are all shaping him into yeah. the the Groot that he's gonna be the the pimply faced <laughs> one playing video games. And then um, I love the opening sequence of Guardians too because it seems on the surface like it has no point when they're battling that giant interdimensional being to protect those batteries. The Absolisk, Hyperbola, Abolisk, batteries, Abolisk, Hyperbola. Alabisk? <laughs> Someone, someone's going to be like, it's actually an Asilisk. But I think it's Abilisk. And it's it's the great fun dance scene with Groot and dancing around and fighting everybody. But we all get little intimate moments with Gamora trying to protect Groot. Or, or and Dra she's like, hi. He waves at her. <laughs> she's like, hi. And Star-Lord and, and Star -Lord having fun with him. And then Raccoon. And then he has this great relationship with Drax where like Drax kind of doesn't even know he exists. And every time he looks at him, he tries to stand still so that Drax can't see him. No, it's not that. What is it then? It's that Drax hates dancing. Oh, is Remember that he said he has that conversation with Peter about Gamora? Oh, yeah, you're right. And so he hates and despises anyone who dances because about that. he says when he tells about his wife when he first met her, he loved, he fell in love with her because she hated dancing. She doesn't. She didn't dance. Someone's going to be like, how does he have a movie podcast? <laughs> <laughs> what an idiot. <laughs> Sorry, man. I just, uh, I got to no, drop the knowledge I'm on you. I'm glad you corrected me. Thank you. I learned something new. You're welcome. But what's really cool about um, Baby Groot's opening dance scene is that that wasn't just a completely CGI creation. James Gunn actually hopped in a mocap suit and danced the entire scene out the way he wanted Baby Groot to look when he danced. And so they, the CGI team, uh, they animated on top of James Gunn. So Baby Groot dancing is actually James Gunn dancing. I want to dive a little more into ego in the second film if you're down for that. I'm down, man. I'm here. And obviously played by the legendary Kurt Russell, who's still a hair god. That and guy's got, hair, man. Like, my God, this this dude still has it. And yes, the name of the villain is the main theme of the film in a way. And they almost reject their egos to become a family again at the end of the film. Actually, Ego is not his father in the comic books. It's another alien. I can't it's like Jinso or something. I can't remember his name. Um, but James Gunn changed to Ego, I think, because he wanted to make the scale of the film much bigger. Because his, his father wasn't like a super being in the comic books. And so I think he wanted to make it really big um, and bombastic and have this gigantic, huge villain. And, I mean, I don't, th I don't think there's any problem with him changing it. I think it still worked out really well. And it has it's a fun movie. And I think Kurt Russell, I, I'll watch anything he's in. He's, he's an amazing actor. And he's just, he's just like, he's got that cool quality about him. And every movie he's been in, he's just cool. Too cool for school, man. And Peter's immaturity in the first film, it's one of the main themes of his character, but also it comes to save the day in a way. You know, he does that little dance off to distract Ronan. And even like you said, he calls him a bitch before before they kill him and he blows up. Um, but it, it, it comes back as a character flaw in the second film. And also it causes him to momentarily throw away his family and his friends for, for these newfound powers that he's gotten from his father ego and how he's learning more about them and how he can do new things. And again, we're talking about this validation that he's always wanted that he finally has that he he's has special. Huh? They have a catch. Yeah, he always want to have a catch with his dad and he's throwing that <laughs> orb around. But little does he know that ego is pretending to care about Peter. He doesn't really love him. Maybe, maybe some part of him likes him in a way, but he doesn't love him because we learn that ego's been doing this with thousands of different beings and and planets finding spawn and creating spawn to try to create another celestial and we also get another great character mantis who becomes another has another large role later on in the avengers and she's this very innocent being who's an empath and she has the ability to sense other people's feelings and alter them and she's the one who ego keeps to help him help him sleep so that he can actually quiet his mind because he has so much going on and then her and Drax have this hilarious, like, odd couple relationship that plays so well because socially they're they're both so awkward, but in the opposite ways, so they actually play off each other so well. Yeah, and the thing with Ego, he's a brilliant manipulator because he knows exactly what strings to pull with, with Peter because he knows that Peter is seeking validation and Peter, having lost his mother 
and being raised as an orphan, he knows how to get at Peter and what to say to make him fall into this. It's it's not so much that he's betraying his friends for the power that he's gotten. It's he's betraying his friends because he, he has a father now. And that's what he's deep down, what he's always wanted. But he's blinded by what Ego's telling him. But Ego's so smart. You're right. The way he manipulates him, though, most effectively is with music and, and, and saying the lines from the songs that Peter loves that his mother left him on the tapes. Yeah, bonding with him about that. And also describing his mother, describing her in detail and her personality and and talking about her when Peter has no idea that he's done this with thousands of different species across the the universe. And what makes Peter Quill so great is that as soon as he f- hears that Ego killed his mother, he decides to throw it all away, go back to who he was, give up being a god, and just starts blasting Ego with his gun. And that's why I think it's easy for him to turn on Ego because he realizes that Ego is he's not human. He's, he's, a, he's a celestial. He's just... He's a, a god, and in his lack of empathy towards other beings, especially his mother, and the fact that he wants to take over the gal- the entire universe and turn everything into him, it Peter. Once Peter found that out, he I think it was easy for him to turn against his father. Yeah, and then little did he know that Yondu was trying to give him advice the entire film about how to defeat Ego. Yondu's explaining to him, "You think I I use my brain to move this arrow around?" He's trying to explain to him that he uses his heart, and that's where. Peter's able to harness his celestial abilities to match ego and strength and stop him so that his friends can escape. And I love this great back and forth that Yondu and Rocket have, where again, Rocket is still, even though they're fighting ego together, he still is having trouble coming to terms with friendship. And he says he only wants to save Quill to prove that he's the best. And then Yondu's like, quit saying stuff like that, basically. He's like, I know who you are because you're just like me. And they grew up the same way. And all they do is push people away because of the pain in their past. And I think also what Yondu's saying there is that Rocket's lying. He's going to going to help Quill because he loves Quill. And he's, he's, he's his family member. Exactly. Yeah. And one of my favorite lines, again, that later Peter says during this giant battle, when he's going back and forth with Rocket and Groot inside the little chambers, as he's like, what a day. And then he just, which is great because no matter everything he's gone through, and he just found out that this god is his father in the same day that he's found out that he killed his mother, he just goes, what a day I'm having. And he's just able to shrug it off in a way. Yeah, and then, and then James Gunn throws in just that fun humor, like them. he's asking everyone for, for tape. <laughs> and then Drax is like, scotch tape? He's like, yeah, scotch tape is fine. You don't have it? Then why did you ask me if it was scotch tape was okay? Did you ask Nebula? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are you sure you asked her? Well, she was sitting next to Yondu. <laughs> <laughs> And then it's like, uh, who who can't love the baby Groot with the buttons? <laughs> <laughs> I was I piss my pants every time I see that it's, scene. It's a great scene, and that's just James Gunn adding his humor because James Gunn has made some really great dark comedies. He made Slither, uh, and then he made Super with Rain Wilson, where he played this guy who was trying to be a superhero, but he was just like messing people up with a wrench. <laughs> <laughs> it's a realistic version of Kickass. Yeah, it's so funny, but it's so dark and just it's a it can be disturbing. But he has this way of balancing both like either drama or something disturbing with humor. And it's it's a rare talent for a filmmaker. And then obviously, I mean, this film ends with uh, the group uniting and understanding and that they are a family and they're a unit and they have to stick together. And I'm so very much looking forward to their next film, which is going to be in the Thor movie. And I'm so curious about this movie, especially because Christian Bale is going to be the villain. But then also... Because Thor had such a great dynamic with the Guardians in Infinity War. I think he was a perfect choice for um, because Hemsworth is so naturally funny and charismatic that he fit into that group so well. I can't wait to see them play with that again in uh, in Thor Love and Thunder. And I think probably the funniest part of both movies is Taser Face when Rockets <laughs> is trapped Taser. down. He's like, you thought the name Taser Face was cool? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> There's so many funny parts of this movie. Mm-hmm. I, I Drax gets me, man. Yeah, Drax. The shit Drax, Drax says is yeah, so Drax funny. Is, Drax is too much. But these movies are great, and I think they're highlights for Marvel's MCU um, franchises. And so far, they're two for two, and I think they'll be obviously three for three when the third one comes out. And I believe James Gunn was rehired. Um, he's back onto the third film. Yeah, he's back directing the, the third film, and he's going to be hopefully. I, and he's also um. 
directing Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad, the new one. Yeah. Which I'm sure will make it a lot better because the first Suicide Squad was such a disappointment. It was a bad movie. <laughs> it was a bad movie. And that wraps our episode on Guardians of the Galaxy Volumes 1 and 2. Be sure to head on over to RaidersoftheLostPodcast.com to find all of our content, find all of our merch, and become a patron today. Take care, everyone. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Hit that subscribe button and notification bell. Listen to the audio formats of Raiders of the Lost Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast.